Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast. It's Michael Shelley here. The Ponderosa Stomp is next week. If you don't know what it is, it's a music festival. Happens every two years, usually in New Orleans. And it's run by a non-profit organization whose mission is to shine a spotlight on the unsung heroes of American music. And uh, there's just some great stuff, some great folks uh, playing this year. It's two nights, and it's usually music from 6.30 p.m., usually till... Ah, three or four in the morning. It's it's in, it's intense, and they do a great job of uh, of getting good backup, sympathetic backup bands. And a lot of people just do twenty, twenty five minutes. Some people do ten, fifteen minutes. They come out, and uh, the, the the break between bands is quick. Uh, I'll just to give you some hint of what's coming on: uh, Willie Hightower, Brenda Holloway, Mabel John, P.F. Sloan, Freddie Boom Boom Cannon, uh, Joe Clay, Jimmy Jules, Lynn August, Warren Storm, Al. Hendrix, uh, Augie Myers, Barbara Lynn, Irma Thomas, Roy Head. Uh, it goes on and on and on. So visit uh, PonderosaStomp.com for information. Maybe I'll see you down there. Uh, and I, so that's how I put together this uh, Encore podcast today. I picked two folks I talked to who are on the list of uh, folks performing at this year's Ponderosa Stomp. These are uh, two interviews. Uh, the first one we're going to hear is Betty Harris from August 2008, sometimes called the Soul Queen of New New Orleans, interesting lady, and uh, she doesn't play too often, so I'm really looking forward to seeing her. I've never seen her. And then Roy Head, who I interviewed in August of 2007. What a character, and uh, uncensored. He just sort of says what's on his mind. Really interesting. So two uh, different interviews. They're both playing this year, uh, next week. I'm really looking forward to seeing them. It's going to be fun. Uh, Mike Sin will be filling in for me on the radio show, if you listen to that. And uh, that's it. Uh, This is sort of in honor of the Ponderosa stuff and uh, those going and those not going and maybe we'll see you two years from now uh, just both interesting I always like to hear from you Michael S WFMU dot O-R-G that's it I'll talk to you soon here's Betty Harris and then Roy Head yeah, well, little bit of thing I do yeah, I'm just trying to get closer to you oh, holy cow what you doing child mm-hmm. you got the kind of love that drives me wild if you could see inside my soul, you see love. No, that's love that won't yeah. You see your love that will never run cold. You see love. No, that's love oh, that yeah. This old world is a better place to live when the one you love in return does give you love. Lots of love. Yeah, there's Betty Harris. And Lee Dorsey, Love Lots of Love. And who couldn't love that song? It just makes you want to jump around. Betty Harris joining us on the telephone. Welcome to the program. How are you? All right. How are you? I lo- that's a fantastic song. We just heard a whole set of great uh, Betty Harris music. D- do you remember recording that, Lee Dorsey? Was he a crazy guy, a nice guy? Yeah, yeah, Lee was. A lot of fun to be around. However, we did that at separate times. Really? Not even in the same room? Right. Oh, that's hysterical. That's amazing, because it is such a... It sounds like a, you're having fun with each other. Well, we had fun when we weren't <laughs> singing, but uh, normally uh, most of my recordings with Alan Toussaint was done one-on-one. That's amazing. Uh, let's go back to the very beginning. I've seen on the internet that you were born in 1939, 1941, or 1943. It's like, let's make a deal, you know? you can. Pay. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> or, or you can opt out if you want. We always opt out. Okay, that's fair enough. It's in that time frame somewhere. Uh, born in Florida, your father was a minister? Yes. So what kind of music was in, in your house? And I, and I have a good guess, I think. Uh, believe it or not, sacred harp, uh, which is like four-shaped notes singing. Huh. Um, however, there was a mixture because my father was a promoter, and he brought in people like the Dixie Hummingbirds, Rosetta Thoth, the Davis, the uh, Blind, both groups of the Blind Boys, uh, the Caravans. I mean, all these people helped to shape me. So these folks were all coming through Orlando area, and your father was... No, 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 no. I was not living in Orlando then. Well, they were coming to Alabama. Alabama. My fa- my family uh, migrated 
to Alabama, which is where my father was from. I see. I've always heard that sort of, especially the vocal quartets, where there was sort of a wild offstage sort of, you know, lock up your daughters when the quartet came through town. Was, was it a crazy time? Well, um, with some of them. <laughs> uh, the ones that lived in our home, uh, the Dixon Hummingbirds were the most perfect gentleman I'd ever met in my life. My mom, who is now 95, 97, fished with our Tucker, and uh, they stayed at our home. Uh, Rosetta Starr stayed at our home. Um, there were other members who of different groups that stayed, but uh, my father was very careful about who he brought home. Wow, very interesting. What a great uh, influence for a child. Well... Rosetta Tharps is uh, was my son's godmother, mm. and um, after I had him, she's going like, "What are you going to do with your singing?" You know, <laughs> but uh, we we finally got it going. But she was uh, an influence as to what I was going to sing. Mm. I've always wished I had a time machine I could go back and get Rosetta Tharp to give me some guitar lessons, you know? <laughs> she, she, you know, she had her own way of, of doing things. Individual, mm-hmm. yes. Um, it, and during that time, there, you know, there was this thing about, oh, she played rock music or she played uh, the blues or what have you. And uh, I liked it because it was different from the caravans or different from... Uh, the ward singers or, or that type of group and that's all I had heard most of my life so when Rosetta's music came along I said oh I like this well, it was very unusual in the early 1940s and there was sort of it was gospel music and then she would sort of rip with her gold Les Paul into like a crazy guitar solo like Led Zeppelin or something you know it was yeah. just very very interesting and yeah very rocking and very uh, very groovy very R&B mm-hmm. yeah uh, so you decided, did you just start singing as a teenager? Did you sing in the church? How, how did you figure it out? Well, uh, I had sang in the church since maybe seven or eight years old. Um, after um, I led like a 125-voice choir with Brother Joe Mays, I figured I had a voice, so I had something to offer at that time. So uh, it wasn't until I finished high school that I decided um, singing was really what I wanted to do. Um, having all the influences that I had, I still didn't have a voice like really anybody that I knew. Mine was like different. And people used to tell me, but that's what make it unique. And I'm going like, hey, mine don't sound right to me. Well, and, and I've always thought that. What were you trying to? Who was? Who were you trying to sound like? What would have been your? Nobody. I wasn't trying to sound like anybody, uh, because at, when I finally made up my mind, I started searching. I didn't have uh, access to a lot of blues and R and B and stuff like that. So it wasn't until I got to New York that I heard Big Maybell that really flipped me. And I'm going like, whoa, she's got a big voice. You know, and um, that gave me some kind of something to go by. Hmm. And um, I went on a short tour with her. And she helped me out a lot as far as being an individual and never change your style and, you know, be who Betty is. Hmm. Uh, Big Mabel... uh Kind of like had a, a small big person, you know, <laughs> with a big yeah. big voice. Uh, there's some there was some information on the internet that said you were her housekeeper. That's not correct, right? No, no. Maybell was a tutorer. She she just uh, took you under her wing and and gave you advice, right? And and and, and even supervised uh, rehearsals. Um, Maybell was the first person that I met that. Actually, I went to and I asked for advice, and um, I asked 
you know, would she help me? And, and she said yes. How did you get from Alabama to New York, and did your father, the minister, say don't go? <laughs> well, back that time, if you were going to do something like that, you didn't ask. <laughs> you just left. <laughs> that was your only way out. And that's what happened. You just left. Yes. I, I knew that uh, my parents would never agree to that. And my first encounter was with uh, the heart, Zell Sanders. And so you just started to try to be a professional singer in New York. That's not a tough order for a, a young girl. Well, I, actually, I ended up in Long Island. And I got a job. Uh, I got up and I sang, and this guy hired me. And I'm going like, oh, my God, you know. So it was from there that Zell Sanders heard me. And uh, I did uh, one tune with them that I led on. And, uh, and that was because the lead singer at that time was getting ready to leave. And... Then Zell found out how old I was, and she says, oh, no, you got to go home. <laughs> but not until she recorded me. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So was it through Big May Bell that you met Solomon Burke and his manager? No, 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 no. Um, I, through, uh, no, not through Big May Bell. I met, uh, I had went to hear Solomon Burke sing. And another thing that influenced me about him, because he was so much gospel, but yet he was singing R&B. Mm. And that was a great influence. And it was through Solomon that I met uh, his manager. And through his manager, I met Burt Burns. So I think that's Babe Shivian is uh, Solomon's manager. And he says, okay, you can sing. Let's go see Burt Burns, who was a uh, producer at the time. Produced all kinds of uh, acts, you know. Yeah. And I just, you know, sheer guts. By now, I'm figuring if I'm going to make it, I got, to, I got to do it now. But I had listened to Solomon do Cry to Me. And I literally fell in love with it. <laughs> and um, I, when I got to Bert, I told him, I says, I want to cover this song. I want to, well, I didn't know the word cover at that time, but I want to sing it. And uh, he said, okay, okay. And I started singing for Bert in his office. And after I got through, like, two lines of the song, he says, wait a minute. And he called Gary Sherman, who had an office upstairs at 1646 or 1650, one of them. And uh, Gary came down, and I sang that song through for them. And a week later, I was in the studio. Interesting. Amazing. Yeah, Burt Burns is sort of one of the guys, you know, the behind-the-scenes New York City producers of that time that just made so many hits and had his own sort of sound because he always arranged these songs real heavily. You know, it's just mm -hmm. amazing uh, Burt Burns sound. So when you were recording those uh, Burt Burns things, uh, I believe Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller were involved as well? I think so. I, now, I, I was too young to know too much about engineers. In fact, I didn't know anybody in the studio for the exception of Bert mm. and Gary. And uh, I read years later that uh, Lieberman and Stroller was partners at that time. And it wasn't until after, I uh, say a couple of years after Academy, a year, about a year, uh, Kratomy was out. Uh, I met uh, one of them. It was either Lieberman or Stroll. I don't know which one, but uh, nobody had paid me, so I said, "That's it. <laughs> That's it. I'm through." So when you were, when you did cry to me, was it uh, uh, as you described earlier? You just came in and, and put the vocals on and already no, finished no, no. track, or cry to me? I never seen so many musicians in my life. <laughs> I think it was the first time I'd ever seen. Strings, hmm. and ever, ever as far as live entertainment, hmm. and um, I didn't. Um, I, I was basically shocked at the that there must have been seventy five musicians in there. Yeah, and 
Bert to shove me in a cage and said, <laughs> sing. <laughs> uh, Cry to Me ended up being a number 10 R&B hit and a number 29 on the pop charts. 1963, I think, is the year. And it's, it's the song you're sort of most known for now. Mm, I think you got your numbers mixed up. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's possible. I don't know what it was on uh, R&B, but in Cashbox and Billboard, at that time it went up to, I think, 16. Oh, yeah, number 16. And you never saw a penny from that? Not a dime. <laughs> not even uh, union fee for singing the session? Nothing. Nothing, not a dime. Wow. Uh, that's So you said, okay, I'm leaving New York, or what was your reaction? Well, my reaction at that time was that I didn't want anything else to do with uh, the Blaine's uh, Jubilee Records or... And and I'm not sure of of what happened after then, but I moved to uh, I think North Carolina, and um, one day I got this knock on the door, and it was Marshall Seahorn, and uh, he said that he had bought my contract. Hmm. Young and stupid, I didn't know. And uh, I, that's how I started working with Alan. Really? I had no idea. So, yeah, uh, Marshall Seahorn was Alan Toussaint's partner. Yes. Seasant, uh, I guess, was their production company. So he said, okay, now you're working for me, and we're just going to start flying you to New Orleans and to put your your voice on our records? Mm-hmm. That's well, the first <laughs> session was live. Uh-huh. And uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like the uh, I didn't like the atmosphere, and I'm one of those people that kind of create my own uh, what I want around me, and and um, I found that I am able to go into where I need to be when basically when I'm alone in the studio. And um, Alan would lay tracks, and I would come in, and sometimes it would be three pieces, sometimes four or five pieces, and that was it. And I wouldn't hear anything else until it was out. So there'd be a, sort of a basic track, you'd throw your vocal on, and then he'd finish up the record, and then you'd hear it on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some fantastic records there. Uh, you know, they're really, I mean, the Burt Burns period, there's some fantastic records. The Alan Toussaint period, there's fantastic records. And they're very different sounding records. And especially the New Orleans records, as they as they progress, they get a little funkier, I think. Yes, and, and that's one of the things that I enjoyed about Alan's work. Um, the songs that he chose, the lyrics he chose, and they they were where you could wrap your arms around them and and become that character and uh be able to express i, I was never told how to sing I, I was i think alan might have corrected me a couple of times but mostly i, I was able to interpret it Oh, whatever I sang. So for a singer, that's kind of your dream, just to have lyrics that connect right away and you can just right. give it a performance. I, they they have to have a feel to them. And, I mean, Alan Toussaint, just such a prolific, you know, at that time, he was just cranking out tunes on so many different artists, and just the quality was so high. What was he like then? What was his work ethic like? What was it like going down to New Orleans then in the in the mid-60s? You don't want me to answer that. Oh, I do, sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't curse, that's all, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to say that, Alan, uh, at, let me put it this way. Um, at that time, I felt uh, used. Uh, I felt something had been taken from me. And um, when I went to New Orleans, I was an outsider, uh, not knowing what 
the music was like in New Orleans, not knowing what their creativity was. And I came in with my New York attitude and um, kind of walled myself in to maintain being Betty. So I, I, I took an attitude with Alan, uh, if you can write it, I can sing it. And uh, that's kind of how <laughs> that relationship went. Um, it wasn't until sometime later that uh, I really began to listen at the music and, and appreciated it for what it was. How interesting. So sort of that your bad experience in New York really changed you forever. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yes. So, so uh, I think you made about twenty records with Alan Toussaint. Uh, you know, all, right. stylistically all, all over the map. Did you see money from those records eventually? Not a dime. Not a dime again. Not even the. Not nothing. Not a dime. Wow. A plane ticket. A plane ticket. Uh, tell In me. A hotel room. That's amazing. It's an amazing story. Uh, we're talking, of course, with Betty Harris. She's got a gig coming up right in this area at Maxwell's in Hoboken on uh, this Friday, the 22nd, Betty Harris and the uh, New Orleans All-Stars. We'll talk about that in a minute, but first I want to know more about touring with Otis Redding. When, when did you do that, and what was that like? Um, that was one of the most... Uh, that was the experience of my life at that time. Um, here I was on tour with Otis Redding, James Carr, and Johnny Taylor, Betty Swan, and the Manhattans, and Soul Children. Just, a, I mean, a whole conglomerate of us. And I think everybody had hits at that time. It was really it was wonderful as far as being on the show with these people. Now, the traveling and the living conditions, I hated it. What what year was that? I think 64, 65, somewhere. And was it touring the South? Yes, all over the South. So you're in a bus just with all these folks and... Uh... Well, my manager was progressive. He brought me around to trip ticket to L.A. So I would use this ticket when I wanted to get some rest and get away. I would fly to the next gig. But um, being around them and being uh, involved and learning from them and, and uh, learning voice parts, because I never had voice lessons, so most of what I did was just me. And learning what it meant to make mistakes and uh, learning how to accept the fact that you made, you did a boo-boo or <laughs> did something you shouldn't have done. But it was one glorious experience for me. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever cross paths with Isaac Hayes? No. And uh, we, we came in contact with uh, Detroit. Um, the Motown sound. I woke up one morning and I heard bongo drums. I heard so much noise I'd never heard in my life. And come to find out, the whole Motown show was in the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Just having a jam session? Yes, at 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, dear. So, it was at that point, you know, you can't beat him, you join him. Yeah. Uh, you did make one record with James Carr, which we heard a few minutes ago. Another guy, uh, kind of a crazy guy, right? James, yeah, maybe he was crazy, but he had a voice yeah. that was out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love to hear him sing. He was crazy, but he could sing, yeah. Um, he was quiet, though. James was basically quiet because he, he didn't have much to say most of the time. Huh. But he was a friend of yours. Yes, he was. Yeah. Uh, it's, after it seems like right after that, at the, at the end of the sixties, you, you just dropped out of the music business. Did you just say I've had enough? 
I've had enough. I had a child. And always in the back of my mind, I had to take care of that child. Sure. So I never waited for my parents to do that. I just said, that's it. This isn't working. And then there was something else, too. You know, when you go against the grain, and that's what I did, um, you say, well, God's not going to bless you because you are doing something you know is wrong. And at that time, I kind of felt that way, too, that I wasn't being successful financially because that just wasn't where I was supposed to be. So finally I said, that's it. I'm going back to school. I have a kid to raise. That sounds like a sort of a sensible thing. I mean, the idea that you never made any money from all those tracks would have driven some people around the bend. Uh, so you, you got a job, you were married, you had kids, and sort of lived a normal life. Uh, your your music has been compiled on a couple of CDs. Also, lots of compilations of funky music and New Orleans music have one or two Betty Harris tracks on them. Uh, what finally made you decide to start singing again and uh, playing some gigs again? I raised my daughter without her knowing anything about... She knew I was Betty Harris, but that was it. There was never any big fuss about it. There weren't a lot of pitches be looked at, very few questions answered, and it wasn't until she came home from college and says, everybody's making money off your music but you, what's going on, mom, come on, (laughs) so I finally, um, after talking with uh, her and my son, decided to contact uh, DJ up in uh, Connecticut. That's where I was living at the time. I had moved from the South so my daughter could go to college. Well, actually go to high school. And uh, because she was told she couldn't take uh, an advanced English at her high school down South. So I said, that's it. I'm out of here. And um, we moved to Connecticut She attended Johnson & Wales University, and when she came home and started showing me, I bought this computer for her and all that, she started showing me all all these sites, and at that time, Westside had out uh, Soul Perfection. And I started looking at all these compilations, and oh my God. Uh, I really, I think I got mad all over again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was as, as if uh, people decided I was dead. So um, they were having fun with my music. Yeah, and your story too. Apparently, just any any facts could be anything said. <laughs> that could be printed. However, that truck driving situation—I know where that came. Right? From. They said you were. Someone says you were, you were a truck driver for a while, which is not true, right? No, I married a truck driver. Yeah. But I know who put that story out. God bless him. Who did it? Why did they do it? Well, we're not going to go out there. Okay. Uh, there's a show coming up this Friday at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, Betty Harrison, the New Orleans All-Stars, this Friday. Tell me, what will the folks see who come down to see that show? Well, they're going to see Betty Harris doing all, a lot of the things. We're not doing all of 20 of those tunes. But we will be doing um, something from the new CD. And... Uh, the old things that we haven't done. And they're going to see a very, very soulful show. So, you know, I would say if that's your bag, you'll go home very, very satisfied. That sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait for it. Uh, Betty, I've got the track Cry to Me queued up right here. We've discussed it pretty well. Is there anything else we need to know before we say goodbye? Well, I'm looking for all my friends in Hoboken. Yeah. And for those I haven't seen in years, we will have CDs. We'll have T-shirts and pictures. 
Uh, it seems like you're a woman who's always done things your way, so uh, I'm sure it, it hasn't stopped now, and I'm sure the show will be fantastic. <laughs> oh, we know so. <laughs> All right. Betty Harris, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. When Roy Head, welcome back to WFMU. A pleasure to have you here. How you doing? Oh, I'm just elated to be here. <laughs> elated. Uh, you were born in Three Rivers, Texas, and for me, Texas is sort of what Roy Head is all about. Well, like, like you said, that's where I was born. It, it was, at that time, probably 201 population. That was right after I was born. Yeah, your father was a sharecropper. Uh, you must have grew up fairly poor. <laughs> yes, sir, We, but I didn't know that. We had squirrel dumplings, we had rabbit dumplings, we had snake dumplings. We had everything you wanted. <laughs> and my mother could cook spinach, she could fry spinach, cook spinach, boil spinach, roast spinach. But we, we had a good life. I never really knew Mike I was poor. You, uh, you, I just I had a great life. I wish everyone in America had, had the life that I had. Wow, that, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. A, a squirrel dumpling, how does that taste? Oh, I'm going to tell you what. One of these days, I'll have some fixed up, drop some dry ice on it, and send it up there to you. Well, okay, that's an experience. I'll, I'll take one time at least. Uh, I'll try anything once, Roy. Uh, what, it's delicious. Okay, I'll have to take your word for it. What is your early exposure to music in that uh, atmosphere growing up? What, what were you listening to? Uh, when I was a kid, like I said, my mother and father picked cotton and milk cows early in the morning. And when we'd go in in the evening at our little A-frame house we lived in, or shanty or whatever you call it, shotgun shack, uh, we even had dirt floors, Mike, back then, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. But my mother swept it every day. It was like cement because, you know, in and out and all the travel and people lived there before us. And I would sit at night and listen to the to the, uh, to the Blacks. And all the other people that were out there, and, and I would hear this coming across those cotton fields, and oh God, how I'd love to sound like that one day. And uh, you know, they just sang about about hard times. They sang about hardship. They sang about love. They sang about God. They sang about everything. And I just—that's really where all this stuff was instilled in me. And as I grew older, I used to sing in the school bus going to the football games. And one of the fellows said, "Hey, why don't you put a band together?" So I met a guy named Tommy Bolton, who that was the original traits when we did uh, Let Me Kiss You One More Time and all the stuff in the early 60s. Then we we were good enough. We were on TNT Records. That's Tanner in Texas, which was a big poker label. I don't know. I mean, a poker label, not poker, polka. Gotcha. We got put on a show with Bo Diddley, Laverne Baker, Etta James, Joe Tex. I think Bobby Bland was on the show. Al T&T Braggs. Did folks think the traits were an uh, African-American band? Yes, yes. In fact, Mike, when I came out with Trita Wright, it's <laughs> funny you'd ask that. Uh, my lady that I've been with now for 30 years, well, I can't remember, so luckily she ain't listening to this. But... Uh, her brothers came to whip me because I was black when I played in Memphis. This is a true story. And uh, they came to my dressing room and then knocked on the door, and I was in there. I was playing a place called Lafayette's in Memphis, Tennessee. Anyway, their bro- her brothers came to the store and said, where is Roy Head? And I'm standing there, Mike. I mean, I'm looking at them, and just like you and I would be looking at each other, and he said, where is he? I said, uh, you know, I got a little nervous, I thought. wonder what this is all about. I said... Well, I'm him, and they said, no, you ain't. And I said, you're looking at him. Where is Roy Head? And they're looking over my shoulders and all around me, and I said, I'm, I'm Roy Head. I'm trying to tell you I'm Roy Head. And then their sister came up, Carolyn, and she came over and said, this is Roy Head. I told you all he was white. <laughs> That's true. And uh, Mike, when I first went to KHJ in L.A., and uh, I was on Backbeat Records, and very, very proud of it. It was me, Bobby Blue Bland, Little Junior Parker, Al T&T Braggs, Ernie Cato. You know, I, I was the only little white speck there. <laughs> but 
man, I, I loved it. And we did a show. This is how Peter Wright really originated. And I did a black DJ convention on Southmore, a club called the Palladium here in Houston. And Don Roby decided he wasn't going to let me go on because no one knew I was white. And then KCOH Radio, I think, was a guy from a mountain of soul to Houston, a guy named Skipper Lee. He said, put that boy on, and I'd work with Joe Scott's band, who bagged Bobby Blue Bland. I went on, and it was like, I would imagine it was kind of like uh, Charlie Pride at Panther Hall. Everybody was going, hey! They went, what in the hell? <laughs> and I started doing my flip splits and all that stuff and going crazy with the mic, and they went nuts. And that was my my record went nationwide. Yeah, it's interesting. Earlier, you talked about all the different influences. You know, I do hear some country. I definitely hear the blues. I also hear a little bit of church. Is it possible that Roy Head is a church going man? Oh yes, I did. Yes, I was believing not Church of Christ. Huh. And uh, they didn't believe in dancing or none of that stuff. And oh god, it was it was hard growing up with the parallels of am I doing right or am I sinning. You will be jumping up and down on charcoal and all this stuff. Oh, my God, you scared me to death. <laughs> my mother and father, uh, Mike, that were so, so big. She could start from the Bible in the middle and go back to the front and then to the back. Hmm. And she told me, though, Mike, she said, you know, son, long as you have God in your heart, and I don't really want to go into the whole thing on this, but she said, you don't have to go to church every Sunday. You just have to believe in God and be a good young man and be respectful, be mannerable, and try to grow your life and grow it the right way. And that's that's been the way it's been with me forever. I, I do have morals. People have tried to get me to do a Christian album. You know, Mike, you can't do that if you're partaking of beverages and getting crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, you but, certainly are. There's, an, there's enough Roy Head getting crazy stories out there. <laughs> Don't go into me biting Elvis and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you, that's true. That's true. You, you brought it up. You bit Elvis on the ankle? What happened? I, <laughs> oh, God. You know what makes me mad, Mike? No, sir. With people like you and I talking, of course, you gave me a little leeway into this. But normally, if I walk into a show or a radio station or somewhere to promote such a little show we've done or whatever we're doing, they'll go, Roy Head. You're the guy that bit Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> they don't go Roy Head. You're the guy that did Trader Wright. Right. On your tombstone, it will say he bit Elvis. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but I, I was playing a club uh, down there in Memphis, uh, and Richard Davis came in, who was Elvis's bodyguard and one of his best friends. He said, how'd you like to meet Elvis tonight? I said, oh, sure. You know, and I was taking a little bit of tequila here. Can I say that? Yeah, sure. Oh, okay. I was having cactus juice. Let's put it that way. <laughs> And whatever. And so after my show was up the Thunderbird Lounge, that's where it was, the Thunderbird Lounge. And B.J. Thomas and I played there a lot. And Elvis, like with music, said, how'd you like to meet Elvis? I said, well, you know, I never had. God, that'd be a treat. And, of course, as the night wore on, you know, I got a little happier. It's like the girls all get prettier closing time, and I felt real good. So he took us over to this theater, and I walked in, and he said, now, be cool, Roy. So we're walking down the aisle, and I look over, and he always sat in the middle, and he loved James Bond movies. You know, he couldn't watch Mike. He couldn't go to a movie like we could go. He'd rent out the whole theater, right? Yes, sir. He rented the whole theater, and George Klein was there with me. I'm I'm sure you're familiar with George Klein. Right. (laughs) Excuse me. They said, we're going to go up to the lobby and meet Elvis when they took an intermission. He loved James Bond movies. Went up in the lobby, and God, he had a white suit on. He was still trim at that time. And he looked like a pagan god. (laughs) And... They said, Roy, this is Elvis. I went, uh, uh, uh. I, I thought, i got to do something. i got to do something where remember me. Everybody tells him how great he is, what a great actor you are, which, you know, he wasn't that great actor, but he was <laughs> he was passable. And I just fell down. I said, I've been wanting to do something else ever since Milk Cow Blues. He says, yeah, what's that? I didn't know if it was him or Ventriloquist because his lips never moved. <laughs> I just fell on my knees, Mike, and grabbed his ankle and bit him on the calf. <laughs> Both my shoulders were jerked out of joint, and I'm going to 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 uh, uh, Chicago, Illinois, to play the the I think it's the Rose Club out by the airport in O'Hara. Anyway, it took, I had to go to the emergency room. They had to put my shoulders back in. I just did it as a joke, but that's how fast his security was. And 
They introduced me to Priscilla, and I looked like the hunchback of Notre Dame. I didn't even see her. Did you end up friends with Elvis? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. In fact, he came to San Antonio a few days later, and he, <laughs> first thing he said when he came on stage, I must have got 200 phone calls, because I was, grew up in the San Antonio area. And uh, they said, you ain't going to believe what just happened. Elvis came on stage and said, is Roy Hood in the house? And it was silent for a little bit, and everybody just started laughing. He said, well, if he is, i got to watch my legs or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so that branded me as the Elvis Spider. Right. All right, let's talk about Treater Weight. Uh, went to number two for eight weeks. Oh, it stayed there a long time. The Beatles, bless their hearts. <laughs> Never bought a Beatle record since. <laughs> yeah, I think there was two different Beatles songs uh, keeping you out of the number one spot. Yeah, I think one was yesterday, and the other one was, uh, wasn't Hard Day's Night, was it? Uh, I'm not sure which one it was. I can't remember, yeah. but uh, I'm, ha- I'm having a senior moment, Mike. <laughs> uh, I don't want to think about it. It makes me want to throw up. Yeah, well, it would have been nice to have a number one, but number two for eight weeks, that's something. I mean, that song has become part of the, you know, of the fabric of what 60s music is all about. Well, thank you, Mike. That's That's a very nice compliment. I appreciate that. Uh, how, I mean, was it a song? That I, I I sort of don't get the the image of you sitting in your kitchen with an acoustic guitar writing "Treat or Right." How was the song written? Well, we we made a mistake one night. We were playing a place. These are big venues, Mike. Now you got to really have a microscope to look for these little towns. Uh, <laughs> we were playing a place called East Bernard, Texas, one night, Riverside Hall. I, I wanted them to to do. I think it was Poopa Do. And we had a new guitar player, George Frazier, and he he played the lick wrong. And I just started making up words talking about a cow. That's true now. In fact, Bear Records in uh, uh, Russia or somewhere released that that version. Right, talking about a cow. I've got that version, and it's... it's don't play it! <laughs> it's almost... Please, this, don't play it! Uh, it's fantastic. It's almost the same song, except you are talking about how to make nice to a cow and... Milker. Get good milk, that's right. <laughs> I was a country boy. And then finally I had a bass player came in, Mike. His name was Gene Kurtz. He's he's traveling now. He's been all over London. He's played with Turner and everybody, you know, and that. Anyway, he, he sat down with me one night. He said, Roy, God, people love this song. Why don't we make it about a woman? I said, oh, come on, Gene. I lived 50 miles from the nearest house growing up. <laughs> I didn't know nothing about a woman. <laughs> I'm doing a live interview the other day with some guy, Mike, and my wife says, let me say something. I was married to him six months, and I finally had to say move. <laughs> Is that sick or what? That's, yeah, let's not go there. Uh, you end up- uh, but anyway, Gene said, let's make it about a woman. So we, uh, we, Gene helped me. We changed the lyrics. And the rest is history. Right. Amazing. Yeah. We went into a place called Ghost Star Studios. A guy named Charlie Booth came to see us. And we went in, we did one take, and they said, that's it. We were rehearsing. Hmm. And that's the song that's that, true. That's the song that was number two for eight weeks. True, you're right. There's an amazing clip uh, on the internet. It's pretty easy to find. It's you on the television show Shindig doing oh, True, Right. Oh, my God. And you yeah. are... You are a dancing fool. I mean, I've never seen anything like that, and I urge everyone listening to, to check out this clip of you, uh, you know, just do a search for Roy Head, Treater Wright. What is going on? Did you do this every, do you do this every gig? Just about, yeah. I mean, descri- well, uh, describe. Well, I don't do the over backwards thing and uh, look like a wishbone on a chicken anymore, but. Yeah, I mean, you're like Gumby. I mean, I don't know how you did it. I still do the flips, the splits, and I flip off the stage. I still do all the mic work. Joe Tex taught me how to use the microphone. and uh, Joe Tex, uh, one of the all-time soul greats. Tell me about that. I mean, did, did he take you and sit you down backstage and say, here's how you swing the mic around, here's how you pull it back? Every time that I did a show with Joe, and when I would see Joe, Joe he's from Navasota. Hmm. And uh, I, I didn't live very far from Joe, but I idolized Joe. Who takes the woman with a skinny leg? Ain't gonna bump no more, no big fat bomb. <laughs> and I just, I love Joe Tex. Yeah, also Joe Tex, just like you, he's got a little bit of country in him and, you know, a little bit of soul in him. Well, he grew up in the country, just like I did. Yeah. And, but he t- he did, Mike, he took the time and the courtesy to teach me that stuff. He taught me where, he taught me where to hold the mic, the leap, the, where to kick it from, where to throw it, how to lay it back, how to how to know how far to throw it before I knock somebody's glasses off. He, they, just, he was re- really one of the greatest entertainers I ever met, along with him and James Brown. I, 
that's where I kind of basically was. But the greatest to me of all times was Jackie Wilson. Yeah. Another- and I, I worked for Jackie Wilson at the Apollo Theater, and Jackie just, God, he had such a fluid motion. It was unbelievable, but I, I picked up all my little bits and pieces from all of them. All that throwing the mic, you ever uh, make any mistakes doing that? Oh, yes. It's come off and hit people in the ear and all kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but thank God nobody's ever sued me. They just grabbed the mic and ran out with it. <laughs> uh, in the 70s, you did some recording for uh, a, a well-known, well, a legendary producer, the crazy Cajun Huey P. Mew. That's tell, it. Tell me about Mo. Tell me about Mo. How do you uh, tell me about that guy? He's a he's a legend. Well, I, I'm still mad at him because you know when he finally had to go to the Boy Scout camp, <laughs> uh, I had the newspapers calling me. You know they were getting quotes from everybody. And I think you mean prison. Oh well, yes, sir. <laughs> but in respect to Huey, I didn't want to say that. Well, but anyway, uh, they asked me, "What do you think about Huey and uh, all the little things and the uh, porno and blah blah blah?" And I said, "Well." When you talk to him, tell him I'm a little mad because I wasn't in any of them and they hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> they never quoted nothing I said. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but... He's a legendary record guy. Uh, oh, yes. He produced everybody. Yeah, he did. He, his name's on a lot of great records. Uh, what was he like to work with? He, he was awesome. It was always little brother. Little brother, I wouldn't take a nickel from you, little brother. <laughs> of course, I ain't even seen it penny yet from him <laughs> but I loved him Huey Moe was a Huey Moe was Huey Moe yeah. and evidently he had a great talent for, he had a great ear for talent yeah because he did BJ's Thomas's first song my friend and he did oh god uh, Freddie Fender yeah. he did Doug Psalm he did me he did Barbara Lynn, he, he's done everybody. Yeah, a lot of great records uh, came came out of that uh, that area. He just had an ear for talent. Yeah. And Huey, the, the, his success came because he thought, sign anybody will write their name down. <laughs> if they're an entertainer. Yeah. Uh, in the 70s, seems like you were going from label to label, sort of trying to find a new direction. You ended up having some big hits on the country charts of all places. Well, Mike, I was lost in, uh, uh, in the bottle pretty heavy at that time, and I, I still enjoy a nice, cool drink. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just lost my direction because I was, when they, when they all found, you know, I was burning to the Watts Rides and all, you remember all that stuff. And I'm, I'm touring, playing black clubs and just knocking people crazy till they all found out, you know, that I wasn't, I was a white speck. <laughs> It just, I don't necessarily know if that was truly what happened, but my bookings caved in, and, you know, at, uh, but I enjoyed every bit of it. Well, that, I played the Apollo, I played the Regal, I played the Rooster Tail, I played the Roosevelt. Your livelihood was playing all of these clubs and putting on a crazy show night after night after night, and you really didn't have a reputation for getting in fights, fighting with the audience, fighting with the band. No, fight- but I did outside after the show. Yeah. <laughs> What was that about? Just I liked the fight. I was I was like a little baby rooster. I grew up with the name Head. I don't do I have to go any further. Okay. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. I no? didn't say nothing. No, not at all, sir. Uh it sounds like you had a lot of fun. It didn't sound like it hurt you any. Oh, I had a great time. God, if I could do it all over again, I would take some different routes. Well, when there was a sign there, just point blank detour, I do that now. You, you, you don't just on purpose just go... No, not anymore. Oh, well, you, you learned something. That sounds like progress, I guess. 19- Mike, it's been, it's been a great career. I can't, I can't gripe. Uh, I never reached the plateau that I wanted to. My son, hopefully, is going to do that for me. You've got a son named Sundance who was on the TV show American Idol. And I've got to admit to you, I've never watched a single minute of that show, but you cannot escape the giant cultural influence that show's having. How far along did Sundance get on the show? Well, he got into the top 16, but again, you have to... uh, Top 13, okay, I was corrected by Carolyn. Okay. What that did for him, Mike, can you imagine what... Would have happened to me with Trita Wright if I'd have had 39 million people watching me on TV? Yeah. You know, back then I had black and white, and I had to put a little green thing and stick it on the TV so it has some color. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's doing great, Mike. He's, he's flying around in Learjets and doing parties for the governors and 
Uh, he, he's just, he's going to do wonderful. That's great. Uh, you talked about your, you got no regrets. You know, you feel that your career has been good to you. Has, you know, Treat or Right, it's been in lots of movies, lots of television. Is that affords you a, a, a good life now? Oh, yes, sir. Uh, it's, it's been recorded by, I think, close to like 70 artists. Uh, yes. from Sandy Nelson, you wouldn't remember him. He's a drummer. Sure. Uh, Otis Redding did a version of it. I just loved his version. Yeah. I won't get you story <laughs> ever met. Trees and stuff grew before he got through with it. <laughs> <laughs> George Thurgood did, I think, one of the best covers that I've ever heard. I mean, he hammered down. Thurgood is a very good friend of mine, and the Destroyers, that we talk a lot. I used to get a Christmas card from him, but I've never retaliated and sent him back one. I guess they got tired of that crap. So they quit <laughs> Well, the price of stamps just went up. Maybe he just... Ah, he, no, tell I, me what kind of music you listen to when you're just driving to the supermarket. What, what, what do you blues. do? Blues. Old blues or new blues? Blues. Just pure blues. Just no, I'm I'm back in... I'm, I'm still listening to stuff like Mojo Hand and uh, Muddy Waters. Uh, I really love that. And B.B. Uh, King and all that stuff. And how many? You know, I, sure. How uh, many? How many gigs do you play a year? How often are you playing live? Uh, I do a lot of casino shows, and uh, that's where the lot. money is, right? Yes, sir. Uh, Roy, I really just enjoyed talking with you today. I urge everybody to get out there and see Roy next time he comes to your town, or pick up one of. The, there's a couple good uh, collections of great Roy head music. Roy, I'm going to get out of here with uh, "Slip Away." It's one of my favorite tracks of yours. It's one of these. You know, oh, I, that's a live cut. Yeah, and there's kind of a little break in the middle where you just kind of go off. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what do you remember about uh, recording that that great song. Well, I used to do, I, we did a 50s act, Mike, I know you're short of time, and uh, we played this club four years, and you couldn't even get in. You couldn't even get in the club. It was lined up. If you weren't there, and, you know, by 8.30, you wasn't going to get in. And we had a 50s show we did. I was uh, stud turkey, <laughs> had a girl named Juicy Lucy, and my uh, uh, sax player was, uh, what did I call him, Wolfman. And I had a piano player, uh, the nickname him Slats, and we did a 50s act. We'd spit in the floor, we'd slap each other around, and it was just awesome. So I came across this song called Slip Away. Would you slip away? And so I just made it into a little, kind of like a little recitation thing where this guy's sitting in there, because I would watch club people. And these guys would be in there in these great suits with diamonds and driving them new Cadillacs. And there'd be a little dude sitting across the way, and he'd be in there with his little pickup or his Volkswagen. And so I just kind of made up a little fictional thing about wires hanging out of his ass. You know, the guy drop him off with the Cadillac after she, he'd already got her drunk. <laughs> or, you know, in the mood for, you know, fraternizing, which he shouldn't. But anyway... The little guy drives up, he, he sees this, because the girl's been looking at him all night. That's the whole story of how this came about. Mm. And I would watch this happening in, in the places I'd play. So I just made a little thing up and kind of told a story. Yeah, well, it's a great song. You, there, you know, you do lots of covers of, uh, you know, classic soul songs, and that's sometimes real dangerous to take, you know, like the Clarence Carter version of Slip Away is such a great version. But over and over again, you do this, and you do these amazing versions, you know, just, well, as, just you. as good. It's nice to put your own stamp on something. Thank you, Mike. And yeah. may I say God bless you and thank all the people that came to see me and, uh I just love it, man. Uh, I'd like to be back as soon as I can. Well, I'm glad you're still making music, and uh, you know, thanks for sharing your real interesting story with us, Roy Head. And uh, shall we hear a slip away now? That's good for me. That's uh, good for you. It's good for me. Thank you so much, Roy. Mike, you have a great day. What would I give? For just a few moments What would I give Just to have you near Tell me you'll try To slip away somehow Oh, I need you, baby I'd like to see you right now Can you slip away Slip away, slip away, yeah 
things I ask you to do Please believe me, darling I don't want to hurt you But can you slip away Without him knowing you're gone And maybe we can meet somewhere Somewhere where we both are not alone Can you slip away Him right beside you, getting all up against you, and you're thinking, I won't have to bathe for three weeks, I'm so clean. But what you don't know, as soon as you take her home and you kiss her goodnight, you're walking back to your car, you jump in, you turn the corner, as soon as your headlights are out of sight. Up comes another set of headlights. It's a 1951 Volkswagen. Ten on dent. AM radio hanging out of the dash. Takes you five minutes to get out of the wires. She comes right back outside and she says, Honey, I'm sorry I was sick earlier this evening. But I'm feeling good now. And you know she's mellow. She's been out all evening at somebody else's expense. Now this little dude in the 1951 Volkswagen is the one that's gonna reap what you've been sowing all evening. All right, I want to see you, baby. I'd like to see you right now. Can you meet me somewhere? I'd like to see you right now, now. I won't do you no harm. I'd like for you to meet me somewhere. 
Mojo, Hannah, take one. Take the tempo down a hair. It's a little too bright. <laughs> Hold it. Brilliant, too. Set a right tempo now. You know, it's a little too fast. Does that feel slower to you? All right, I'm sorry. Take three. <laughs> <laughs> 